Good morning and welcome to today's FS Club webinar, Fortified Futures, Tracing the Evolution of Security Systems, which is a quite appropriate topic for today, being Halloween. So security systems can be very handy to keep an eye on any trick-or-treaters or paranormal forces about. We've entered an era marked by rapid and an ever-changing threat landscape. Security systems have evolved and developed from the earliest security system invented 170 years ago, in fact, by Edwin Holmes. His alarm system was one of the earliest attempts to provide protection against unauthorized intruders and burglaries, and it's a historically significant innovation in the field of security. From these early beginnings, the global security industry has evolved and is now estimated to be worth hundreds of billions of dollars annually. So this morning we'll be charting the evolution of the security system from the early developments in the 19th century to the highly sophisticated and technologically advanced solutions available today. It is my pleasure to welcome Paul Miller, the Managing Director of National Monitoring. Paul has over 45 years experience in specifying and designing technological security measures, processes and systems to enhance the safety of vulnerable people and property throughout the UK. Working closely with police forces, the public sector and critical national infrastructure clients, he promotes the application of advanced technology to mitigate risks and enhance protection. Paul has obtained both an MSc in security and risk management and an MSc in professional research methods. He is a chartered security professional and was the master of the Worshipful Company of Security Professionals during 2022 to 2023 and a former trustee of their charitable trust. If you're new to our webinar series, I'm Charlotte Dilbrashley and I manage the FS Club here at CN. I'd like to warmly acknowledge our very generous sponsors who enable us to continue to bring you a wide range of thought-provoking content across finance, technology, economics and security. We'll be recording this session and it will be available to watch on our website within 48 hours. And we'll also be holding a 20-minute Q&A session after Paul's presentation. So please use the webinar facility, chat facility, to send your questions in to me early and then I can feed them into the conversation with Paul. Now, it's my pleasure to hand the reins over to you, Paul. Thank you, Charlotte. Uh, good morning. If I can just share my screen. Um, Hopefully you now have visibility of that. We do, thank you. Thank you. So concern for personal safety and protection of property is, is widespread today. But of course, security consciousness isn't a new phenomenon. Uh, for centuries, locks were standard methods of private security. Uh, we're not quite sure exactly when these were invented, but we know that around 2000 BC, the Egyptians and others were using mechanical wooden locks to run their properties. And since then, of course, there have been numerous improvements in the form that uh, we have today, uh, where locks and physical security still play a vital role. However, um, throughout time, man has tried to protect their people and their property by creating noise to, to warn of intruders. If I can just persuade my slides to change. And there we are. So historically, um, watchmen, dogs, fences and of course you know the likes of geese here which warned of the presence of intruders of course valuable deterrence but capable of being breached so during the 19th century the population of the american urban centers was growing rather rapidly riots and civil disturbances shattered the tranquility of major cities 
and homes and businesses um, became attacked on many, many occasions. Uh, industrialization resulted in more specialized use of land, and this, in, together with the urban growth, caused changes in the organization of activities within the city. The wealthy, who used to be in the center of the city, moved out. Affluent residents moved to the periphery, and this presented new opportunities for criminals and also compounded the properties, problems of controlling them. In 1789, New York had just 33,000 inhabitants, and these inhabitants were protected by some 32 night watchmen and even fewer daytime constables and marshals. By 1843, the population was estimated at 350,000 permanent residents, and the city at that point had 34 constables, 100 marshals, and just over 1,000 watchmen to preserve this tremendously increased population. At this point, the thief had very much the upper hand. And the ancient contest between those who stole and the property owners was such that the burglage was generally successful due to sort of their secret way of operating out of hours and the introduction of something which could reliably detect them could make us a very significant contribution to security. Mechanically operated bird alarms were introduced in England back in the 1700s, but these were essentially pull wire systems, trip wire systems, linked to a series of chimes or, or a vault door. And reportedly, the very first uh, application on these was, was actually a bank in Massachusetts, where a wire from the vault door ran underground to a set of bells located in the cashier's home who happened to be next door. Although they could be installed in a domestic setting, there's no real reference to these in America. And particularly these systems wouldn't have been that effective. You could cut the wire, and at which point the system simply wouldn't work. And wealthy owners needed a more effective maid to protect themselves from the rather more skillful and uh, professional thieves at that time. Electricity had been known for many centuries, but it wasn't until the late 18th century that man learned how to produce steady currents of electricity by chemicals. Uh, Alessandro Volta produced the first source of electricity, the electric cell back in 1801. And the telegraph, which was both the first practical and commercial application of electricity, only became possible after magnetism and electricity became understood. So midway between throughout, sorry, the 19th century, security became electrified. And by adapting telegraph technology, the first burglar alarm system actually using these technologies was patented as an improved magnetic alarm by the Reverend Augustus Russell Pope back in 1853. So that's exactly 170 years ago when we have the first electromagnetic security system. Pope was the first person to actually develop technology to apply this rebirth alarm. We don't actually know what the catalyst was for this. It's difficult to imagine that he actually developed his burglar alarm in total isolation. However, he became, I think he's regarded as the father of the, the modern burglar alarm system. After he granted, after his patent was granted, granted, he set about marketing this system. He installed his device in several homes in Somerville, 
some without charge, so it can be tested and its merits made known to the local community. You advertised newspapers, put a traveling salesman into the field, and exhibited his new system at the Fair of the Mechanics Charitable Association of Boston, where he received a diploma for his work. Although he did install a system in a large boot and shoe factory near Boston, commercial success somewhat eluded him. His duties as a clergyman wouldn't permit him to do more, and he's also suffering rather bad ill health at the time. And he sold his patent to a gentleman by the name of Edwin Holmes for actually $1,800, which in 1870 was a very substantial sum. And it was Edwin Holmes that would go on to pioneer the electric burglar alarm industry. And here is good Mr. Holmes. Um, Holmes had moved to Boston in 1849 and opened what was called at the time a notions store. And then they sell, sold thread, and needles, thimbles, and other sewing paraphernalia. So quite how he moved into burglar alarms, I'm somewhat unsure. But after acquiring the patent rights, he relocated his family and new business to New York. As according to his son, Holmes felt that all the burglars there in the country actually were in New York. As with most people of the day, he taught himself. He taught himself electricity and he taught himself the, the methods of installing alarm systems. Initially, things moved rather slowly because to most people, electricity was very much a foreign concept. And businesses found it very difficult to understand how that opening a door or a window at the ground floor of the house could cause an alarm to sound in another part of the house. So, in order to gain believers, Mr. Holmes generated this device, a small model um, of a house with his alarm system and a door. And he used this just to demonstrate to people how, in fact, his burglar alarm worked and how it was possible to transmit a signal from one part of the house to another. Over the next few years, Holmes perfected this and he appears to, at that point, uh, achieved acceptance with the demand for his services increasing steadily. And this apparatus it was actually manufactured in, in a shop nearby. And there's some relevance to this um, by a gentleman, or was owned by a gentleman called Charles Williams. And this was a machine shop, which was actually used for the exclusive manufacture at the time of Holmes's electrical instruments and appliances. So with this system, Holmes would fit switches to doors, to windows, and connect these up to this sort of enunciator bell system. Now, one thing at the time was we didn't actually have any insulated wire. Steel wire was available, but it wasn't available in a sort of insulated form as we have today. So here you can see um, Holmes actually arranged to have bare copper wire wrapped with um, cotton and then dipped, as you can see in the middle of this image here, in a bath of paint to create a green colored insulated wire. And again, as far as we know, this is one of the first instances, if not the first, of insulated wire being produced. Uh, in due course, this was taken over by a gentleman called Mr. Phillips, and he set up a factory producing wire across the United States. 
But um, prior to this time, the only wire had ever been used for making magnets. So this, again, was something which Holmes had to do. Quite an innovative individual when you consider this was all happening around the 1870s. So although the majority of alarm installations were in private residences, the number of banks and businesses became interested and, in fact, were listed um, as clients of Holmes who advertised the Telegraph House Alarm, which could be connected to any shop, office, store, or public building in New York, in such a manner that the opening of a window, door, or even a desk drawer will ring a bell so it can be heard by the police at any part of his beat. Now, in such premises, um, it was normal practice that rather than placing the alarm bell in the sleeping quarters, it was mounted on the outside of the premises. And while external bells might possibly frighten off the first time intruder, criminals tended to revisit and attack again. And because high-risk business subscribers couldn't be assured alarm bell would actually generate the required response, it was decided to actually link these premises up to a central point. And this, in fact, was something which, again, was an absolute first for Holmes. He created what amounted to the first central monitoring station where he remotely monitored alarm systems. There are a number of other innovations which, which Holmes actually um, developed. This is one here. These are safe cabinets which were wired up in such a way that it wasn't possible to either open the doors or in fact even cut through them to get access to the safes behind them. But Another, that's another illustration there. This is again uh, a bank vault with the door covered in wires so that if you disturb the wires, you would operate the alarm system. Now, as I mentioned, um, Holmes here created the very first monitoring center. And this again is the image of one of his buildings in Washington Street in Boston. And you can see this massive wooden frame on top of the building and wires radiated out from the top of his building to the banks, the jewelers, and the other businesses in the, in the, in the area. Um, at those times, there were no constraints that are today for running cables, and this was exactly what Mr. Holmes did. Um, and he ran these to his central office, which was equipped 24 hours a day with guards, who on receiving an alarm signal would then be dispatched to investigate. Again, another, another image here, drawing of uh, a street with many wires crisscrossing it, linking Mr. Holmes' alarm systems to his central monitoring location. And again, this is a, an image of that, uh, that location. And you can see on the wall on the left-hand side, these are in fact galvanometers like meters. Um, and you could determine by examining these which properties were potentially um, the alarms have been activated. And again, very innovative. Uh, Mr. Holmes had his own patrol force. And again, you can see these gentlemen here who would be dispatched to investigate alarms. So we have here the first monitoring centre back in 1872, uh, and also a guard force to go with them, uh, very much as we do today. Now, as I mentioned earlier, um, Holmes' equipment was in the main manufactured and assembled for him at the premises here of Charles Williams. And Graham Alexander Bell was also a customer 
of Charles Williams. And Holmes suggested that some of the telephones which had been recently been invented by Graham Alexander Bell could actually be linked to the wires which he was using to connect his banks, his jewellers, his other premises back to his central location, his central station. During the day, these wires weren't needed. The wires were there to transmit alarm signals when the premises were alarmed at night. And during the day, they were therefore available for telephones. So, as Holmes, with his guard force, had access to a number of banks, he actually went to six of his customers without their permission, and he nailed a telephone up in each of those premises. Five of the bankers were quite happy to see these telephones installed, but the sixth indignantly ordered that that plaything be taken out. He could see no possible use for a telephone and required it to be removed immediately from his premises. But the other five were connected by a switch in Holmes' office, and this became the first ever telephone exchange. So Holmes himself, a rather innovative individual, not only uh, is responsible for the, the promotion and the installations of the first security systems, he also operated the first telephone exchange um, back in the 1870s. That element of his business grew, and he did actually end up setting up a telephone company as well. Initially, his telephone switchboard was um, staffed by his messenger boys, but in his words, they became far too raucous, and therefore he decided that he, he would employ um, female telephone operators to make the connections between the premises. And again, he's credited as the person who employed the first ever female telephonist. And there's just an image of the offices of Charles Williams, where Holmes became aware of the work of Graham Alexander Bell. And there's Prof Bell, uh, as it says there, the inventor of the toy that talked. And here is an image again uh, of some telephones lined up on a shelf there on the right hand side, which allowed speech to be transferred. Uh, again, at the time, um, people did not understand electricity. It was regarded partly as sort of witchcraft and sorcery. Um, how, in fact, was this voice transmitted from one location to another? There were even suggestions the wires were hollow and the voice was transmitted along the hollow wire. Of course, well, we know that was not the case. Uh, and this is one of the very, very early telephones which actually was, was in place. And there we have the first ever telephone exchange. So if we move on 100 years, this is an advertisement from a, a little brochure um, from ADT explaining how their burglar alarm system operates. Um, ADT actually stands for American District Telegraph. So they again were born out of a telegraph company. But you can see here the same principles apply in that we have a burglar entering property on the left here. We have the system monitored and it says there ADT gets the alarm. And then you can see on the bottom right hand side of the image, a, a vehicle making its way to the premises to, uh, to apprehend the burglars. So really in that hundred year period, not a great deal changed. If you look at what was happening in the UK, um, it was about a hundred years later, the mid 1940s, 50s, 
um, that we first started um, installing electronic security systems here, electric security systems. Initially, there was no particular control over these. There were no standards. Uh, and in 1971, we had the first British standard for the installation of intruder alarm systems. These at the time could be installed by absolutely anybody. Um, some of these systems became connected to police services by a piece of electromechanical contraption, which simply dialed 999 and then relayed a spoken message to the police control. Needless to say, without any supervision, these systems generated vast numbers of false calls and therefore the industry uh, was required to bring in some regulation. Uh, and this was in fact uh, the, the first organization where the National Supervisory Council for Intruder Alarms, which became the National Insecurity Inspectorate, which we have today. And they were joined a few years later by a second inspectorate which is the Security Systems and Alarms Inspection Board, the SSARB, and both of those organizations are responsible now for certifying alarm installers um, operating to the appropriate standards and for the um, oversight, which now has significantly improved the false alarm performance. It's not perfect, but if we go back 20 years, there were best part of a million false alarms a year, which clearly a massive drain on police resources. So these two organizations have done a great deal to improve standards within the UK. If we then look at some of the devices that we might be using today, um, modern alarm systems tend to use a combination of devices that can be fixed to doors, windows around the perimeter. Uh, these typically are, are wired devices. On some systems, they can be wireless, the majority we still wire them and these are magnetic contacts so a magnet is brought in close proximity to a switch and as the door is opened the magnet and the switch separate and the alarm operates we also make fairly extensive use of movement detectors to protect the space inside a building so it's all right well and good protecting the perimeter but if that perimeter is breached at any point by somebody avoiding the detection on the perimeter, we now have detectors internally, which can recognize movement. Most commonly used are these infrared detectors and they simply detect a change, rapid change in temperatures um, between the premises and a warm human body or bodies wandering about. Typically these devices have a range of different protection patterns. Some of them are sort of vertical curtains, some cover 360 degrees uh, mounted on ceilings. Um, and to try and improve the performance of these units, because infrared detectors, they are detecting relatively small changes in temperature. They can be false alarms, less so today, but certainly in the past, they were affected by heating systems coming on, drafts, warm air currents, etc. So it's now fairly common practice to combine detectors where you have a microwave detector, which detects motion, essentially using radar, and an infrared detector. And the likelihood of the two detectors being affected by the same interference at the same time is very much reduced, and that improves the reliability of the detection. We have vibration detectors, which are used on walls, windows, 
We use infrared beams externally, particularly to protect compounds. And then there are some more specialist devices which will tend to get used in, particularly in, in banks and vaults, detectors that sense smoke, which might come from cutting equipment, light, noise. If we go back to Mr. Holmes' days, the transmission alarm was simply down a pair of wires. If you interfered with those wires, you cut them, you could quite easily compromise this system. So today we tend to use rather more sophisticated transmission systems where we actually monitor the path between the premises and the alarm receiving center. So if the signaling is interfered with, if somebody tries to cut a cable, then the alarms generally would be transmitted over a mobile network instead. Um, there are two systems we use very much in the UK. One is operated by British Telecom called Redcare. Other one's operated by a company called CSL. And these are fully monitored alarm transmission systems. Uh, which to say are very, very commonly used now throughout the UK. This again is ADT's alarm receiving center back in the, in the 1950s. Uh, this again is across in the States. Uh, and you can see on the right hand side, um, spools of um, ticker tape. And these would simply print out uh, a series of dots and dashes, very much like a, a telegraphic system would which would indicate what was happening at the various premises. This is our alarm receiving centre today, or one of them. Um, again, not a ticket tape in sight, um, all, all digital. One thing which has changed, or is in the process of change at the moment, is the way in which alarm receiving centres actually contact the police. So at the moment, for the majority of our police forces, when the alarm receiving centre needs to contact the police, they dial into the control room in on extra-directory lines. The call is initially handled by a police call taker. And when the call taker has all the information they need, they will pass the information on to a dispatcher, who in turn will organise a police response to the premises. And that tip process typically is around three to four minutes. I say that's the way this has been done for the last well since the, since the 50s. There is now a system in operation called ECHO, which actually digitally transmits information. So the alarm receiving sensor no longer makes a phone call. They transmit the information digitally through the ECHO platform directly to a police dispatcher. And the instance is created automatically. That in turn leads to a police response as before, but the whole process is now taking around 1.2 seconds. So we have a much, much more efficient way of notifying police forces of, of alarm activations and enabling them to respond somewhat more promptly than we have in the past. And that is currently working with around a quarter of the police forces in the UK and will hopefully be in all police controls within the next year or two. I suppose no uh, mention of security systems would be complete without some mention of artificial intelligence, um, which is now starting to be seen rather more frequently with security systems, particularly on CCTV, where it isn't possible to constantly monitor banks of screens to detect unauthorized activity. And this is one area where AI is certainly starting to make some inroads. Um, this is just a, a simple diagram here of 
a system which is actually recognizing the presence of a person. Uh, you can see in the foreground, it's put a red bounding box around an individual who's walking up to a property. Now, that is probably something which would be noticed by um, an operator. But if you look towards the top center of that image, you can see a green bounding box around another person. And again, these are the sort of motions that you probably wouldn't detect. Or certainly, if somebody's looking to bank of monitors, it's generally accepted that within about 10 or 15 minutes, their attention span is significantly reduced. And it's difficult to um, adequately monitor premises purely on a non-automated manual basis. So the introduction now of AI to assist us in recognizing patterns of movement that we don't expect, people that are loitering, or, or as we can see here, people approaching premises is, is very much um, been brought into, into use. And there again, this is nighttime images you can see. But again, you can see here on the left-hand side the, 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 the movement of the, the intruders. You can see the, the path they followed, a red bounding box around them because the system has detected this. And then on the right-hand side, a slightly better image of the two individuals. Um, we can make use of facial recognition. Biometric authentication, so this is either a fingerprint or sometimes Irish recognition. Of course, with all these um, newer systems, many are now internet connected. And one, there are many advantages to being internet connected, but of course, one of the downsides is that potentially the system can be compromised remotely. Uh, we all know of attacks on systems that have occurred and Cybersecurity is therefore is becoming somewhat more important. And finally, we're moving across now to a situation where in some cases, the guards that we have relied upon for many years potentially can be replaced in certain circumstances by a sort of digital counterparts or robotic counterparts. Well, while robots are becoming more sophisticated, they may not be suitable in all situations. They won't be as effective as handling complex and unpredictable security incidents. But these require generally some human judgment and intervention. And also security guards, there's human interaction there. There's a human presence, um, which can be a deterrent to potential intruders. However, it's very likely that over the next few years, we will see that robots will in some cases complement the work of security guards by automating certain tasks and enhancing the, the um, efficiency of some security operations. But I think it's unlikely that certainly not in the near future, they're going to be replacing human security guards. Thank you. So a little bit over time there for which I apologize. But uh, thank you. Thank you very uh, much. Very comprehensive and interesting. I'm definitely, I'm definitely familiar with the concept of a dog as a security system, but the geese is quite new to me. <laughs> um, moving questions. Well, another thing actually um, that I noted was with new technologies like the telephone, it obviously enabled lots of linked security systems, and that's happening now with the iPhone. For you know, for example, if your um, security system gets triggered right now, you could access your footage of your house on your cell phone to see what's going on and who's at the door. So it's all linked to the sort of communication technology, isn't it? 
It is, yes. Um, so yeah, and this is um, quite an interesting one as well from Clive here. Um, facial recognition, is it invasive to people's freedom or essential for security and should it be used everywhere? There's, there's two elements here to facial recognition. There's facial recognition as a, as a means of identity, which is what the security industry are using it for, to identify you as an authorised user of that security system rather than you having to put in a key but sorry, put in a number um, or operate it you know, manually. So from that point of view, facial recognition can identify you as an authorised user of the system. It can grant you access to a building. And then, of course, we have the other use of um, recognition, which is to identify people um, potentially um, who may be responsible for criminal activity and that are these systems generally operated by the police. Now, there's a whole area of concern there around how some of those um, images are, are used and how long they're stored for. But I say, the, looking on my side of the industry, the use here of, of facial recognition is to identify somebody who can gain access legitimately to a part of the building without having to present an access card or a token. So from that point of view, um, I think they, they, are, they are simplifying people's lives. And of course, they're much more difficult to compromise. You know, anybody can compromise a four-digit code or a six-digit code, which is sent into a keypad. Whereas from a facial recognition point of view, we've got a much more reliable form of identification here. Don't need to worry about leaving your ID card at home as well, which is quite handy. Well, there is that um, one as well. <laughs> <laughs> Question from Sam. Uh, you mentioned that the uh, security industry is worth hundreds of billions now. Um, what do you think the key factors are contributing to its growth? There's a, a, a number of factors there. I Certainly, crime is not decreasing. We still see uh, significant numbers of sophisticated um, attacks on premises. Having said that, it's fair to say that we're now looking at cyber security in the sense that, whereas in the past it might have been necessary to actually physically attend a property, visit a property or break into it to steal cash or to steal um, valuables, very often now cyber criminals are able to extort money, they're able to transfer funds, they're able to order goods on somebody's account and get them delivered elsewhere. So. The security industry is, I think, going to have to move a little more across into onto the cyber security field. So in the past, we very much relied here upon physical security alarm systems. But as we move forwards, the potential now for cyber criminals to extract vast amounts of money without ever having to leave their desks, essentially. They can work from anywhere in the world and they can attack systems, and they do. And we see these reported on, on a daily basis. Um, so I think that there is a shift there um, because the likelihood of being detected if somebody is operating from another country, um, very much less than actually physically presenting yourselves at an address, breaking into a property and physically um, stealing goods. Also benefiting from flexible working. <laughs> um, <laughs> Very much so. 
on that uh, note then, what do, what do you think the um, future of security systems will look like looking ahead? If we look at the sort of security, if I have to, particularly at alarm systems now, we, we have a situation where, as I mentioned earlier, we have detection devices, infrared detectors and other, de other devices, which in the main aren't that intelligent. So we have a number of systems distributed around a property in different parts of that property, all with sort of limited intelligence and feeding back what they believe is, is intrusion generating a signal back to some sort of control equipment somewhere. It would seem to me that going forwards, we've got the potential to have sensors around a building, which are sending raw information, raw data back to a central unit where AI can actually be applied to determine we've got movement to an area, we've got intrusion, there's a logical progression here of somebody's movement. Um, I say at the moment, we've got a, a large number of relatively unintelligent detectors feeding back to a control equipment which simply just accepts information provided by that detector accepts the alarm from that individual detector uh, whereas i feel going forward there's an opportunity for all that data to be collected and not processed by the detector itself but processed by some central equipment and i say using ai to give us a, a more reliable system Although having said that, the majority of the false alarms are not down to the technology, they're down to the users. Uh, we've probably got time for one more question. Um, so can you give some examples of challenges that security systems have faced in the 21st century and how these were overcome? I suppose that the main challenges to the security systems have, have been the the signaling. So we, we've had situations in the past where a signal is transmitted from an alarm property into a central a monitoring station. We, take, we call them alarm receiving centres now. So they're transmitted into an alarm receiving centre. And historically, that used a, a, a telephone line. So a piece of equipment at the premises would simply dial a number into the alarm receiving centre, transmit a bit of data, um, and transfer across information about the alarm system they were quite easy to compromise. Cut the phone line down. And in the same way as if we cut a telephone line down, you can't make an outbound phone call, the alarm couldn't either. So the transmission systems have become a lot more important. And typically now, these systems have multiple paths. So again, as coming back to the likes of British Telecom and their red care system, CSL and their systems, we have alternate paths. If it's not possible to get the alarm signal transmitted over a pair of wires or a piece of fiber, it's transmitted over the mobile networks, over the cellular networks. And that's given a, a far more resilience to signaling, made the systems a lot more robust. Um, and we're very fortunate in the UK that we still have police forces responding to intruder alarms. A lot of other countries that doesn't happen. It's down to private security firms to actually respond to alarms. So we're still fortunate that we have that police response. I think there's every indication that's going to continue. So it's, I think that the improvements in transmission systems um, and their reliability um, and their difficulty of compromise them is probably one of the major changes in the 21st century. Just one last question that's come through. Do you think these enhanced security systems um, sort of ease the fear we have or enhance the fear? 
I would hope that they provide a degree of reassurance. And certainly the work we do is very much providing security systems that police services use on a temporary basis to protect vulnerable people. And we know from the feedback we get from those people that they do regard the security systems as something that gives them peace of mind and that lets them sleep at night. That's good. Well, thank you very much, Paul, for sharing your um, expertise and work with us today. That was very interesting. And also thank you again to our sponsors for making these webinars possible and for our audience for logging in and contributing to the discussion. We've got lots of um, forthcoming events coming up over the coming weeks and you can find these on our website and looking at um, software risk and resilience tomorrow and then turning on how our financial engineering can save the planet later in the week and then fraud. So it's all very security focused at the moment, actually. Um, but wishing you all a great week and thanks again, Paul. Goodbye. Thank you. Goodbye.